I don't know about you guys, but I was already touched by our Pentecostal baptism that we just did. Grace thought it was Pentecost because she spoke in her own tongue the whole time. Um, and so in this last music that we just heard, I thought was incredible. Um, you could see just in the different voices, one of the ushers walked out and said, I'm in tears. I love that. We come all in different names. We come in different colors. We're shapes and shapes and sizes. And we come, but the reality is we come under a banner. And what we're going to go through as we talk about the series we're about to approach is there was four guys that were sitting in a room. It was me, Rob, Adam, and Paul, and we were trying to discuss what are we going to preach the summer series. I know many of you, if you're like me, the summer has been something we've been waiting for because there's been plenty of activity coming into the summer. And it's kind of that, hey, we're going to go on vacation. We're going to take some time off. The summer series being in here is a little different. It's nice to have a change because where we're going is like this all the time. It feels like, especially through May with all the graduations and all that happens. So you look forward to this time. So in this series, we always have a summer series. We decided on the book of Revelation. Hmm. I don't know how we decided that. I think Rob just told us we're going to do the book of Revelation. Calvin, who is our go-to guy in theology, didn't write a commentary on it. So I had nowhere to look um, because I usually go straight to Calvin's commentaries. He was afraid of Revelation. Spurgeon writes this. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers in London, writes this. He says, only fools and madmen are positive in their interpretation of the book of Revelation. So we said, great idea. Let's do Revelation. (laughs) The focus of the book, though, there's basically when you look at Revelation, there's it's broken down in a whole bunch of language that seems odd and things you don't hear and things that you don't think about that often. The, The first five chapters, which we'll cover do have a little bit more of a straightforward present day relationship and application. But we do want to go through two parts. We want to talk about the interpretation of the book of Revelation as well as the application. The section that we're going to cover is the seven churches of Asia. How many people have ever heard of that? You've heard of the seven churches. Let me just give them to you. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These are real churches. If you went to modern-day Turkey today, you would see these churches. You'd see this area. You wouldn't see these churches. You'd see the cities which these churches existed. Out of the seven churches, five of them, Jesus says, I have something against you. So it's more than likely that most churches... He has something against. That's a pretty scary thought. When I was uh, seven years old, 1977, I went outside, and I don't know if anybody remembers what happened. 1977, snow, snow day in Florida. I put my hand out, and it snowed, and I was in first grade, and my teacher let me out to go touch it, and it was rather dull. It hit. I'm seven. Don't know it. If you're 40, you would think it was a big deal. I didn't. But I came home and told my parents that it snowed. And they decided that they were going to take us to see snow in the summer. And the only place you could see snow in the summer is in the mountains. 
So we go up and we go up to Denver and we go to Yellowstone National Park. We drive up there. We find this place and there's finally snow. We get high enough where we can see the snow. We're in a van, remember, from Florida all the way there. I don't know what my parents were thinking. They're crazy. And we were about 10 years old. I get out of that van, slide that door open, so excited, run over, and I hit the snow and expecting to feel this nice powdery, but it's crunchy. And I'm going, this isn't that cool. But I still lay in it. It feels more like ice. It's more like a snow cone. And I look at my dad. He's over there, and he's building snowballs. His goal, man, he has been in the car with us for 2,000 miles. (laughs) And he does this, and he knows he's allowed. He just rifles one. And I mean, he threw it harder than I've ever seen him throw it. And I'm put... I'm down like this, picking up the snowball. My face turns up and smack. And um, I can't cry because I'm a 12-year-old boy or a 10-year-old boy. But my dad's over there giggling. He's having the time of his life. I felt like I'd been hit with a baseball in the face. And for this moment, I thought, I don't like snow as much as I used to. You know? And I think as I start reading through Revelation, I hear all these people talk to me and say, Oh, I'm so excited to go through that book. And then when you read it, you go, you feel like you get hit in the head with a hard piece of snow. When he talks about these seven churches, John MacArthur writes a great sermon. He did this together for the gospel. But he talks about the very fact that he calls churches to repentance. I don't like that word. Repentance is not a word that I think we embrace too often. But so many times in the Bible, we see all these words that are more than directed on when it comes to repentance to each of us individually. But rarely do we think of these times where it calls repentance to the church. I wonder if God is calling Coleridge to repent. That's a scary thought. So turn in your Bibles with me to Revelation 1, 9 through 20. It says this. You join along. He's writing. I want you to get this picture. John has received this word from Jesus, and he's writing it down. He's going to distribute this to the seven churches of Asia, and this is what he writes. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation in the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is simply meaning that he was in prison for the very fact John was in prison because he stood up for that of Jesus. When he stood up, there is actually tradition that says he was thrown in a pot of boiling oil, and actually oil poured over his head, and he miraculously lived. Remember, John wrote this about 90 AD. He's way later than all the other apostles. Most of the other, all of the other apostles at this point are dead. They've died horrible deaths. John's the only one that lives. And remember, John is the one that stands at the cross till the end, okay? Says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. There's only two of these churches where God is not angry with. And that's Philadelphia and Smyrna. And both of them are poor churches. 
That should send a little bit of fear into our own hearts and minds. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one man, like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a gold sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Daniel has, in his prophetic book in the Old Testament, has almost the same exact account. He talks about this man he sees. He has lightning shooting out of his eyes. He has gold around his waist. He's wearing a white robe all the way down. Daniel accounts for almost the same thing. And what's amazing is the reaction is almost identical. When I saw him in 17, I fell at his feet as though dead. I'm going to leave you right there for a second. There's three ways we want to interpret this book. When you walk into our sanctuary, you see these high ceilings. If you've ever been to Europe and you go to cathedrals, even if in New York, you go, you'll see these tremendously high ceilings. And what is the purpose of these ceilings? They have ornate, stained glass, beautiful pictures. It is because you come from the outside and you walk in, and what are you supposed to be walking into? The presence of God, this transcendent above things. So the first thing we need to understand about interpreting this book, it is from the heavenly places, that transcendent reality. It's from above down to low, okay? The second thing, it's prophetic, Most of us, when we think of prophecy, think of Left Behind series. Prophecy is more than that. Prophecy is actually things that are real and occur at this exact moment, as well as the future. It is what it is now and what it's to be. So I have two pictures of interpreting this book. High to low, now to future. The other one's a commentary. John is writing a commentary. So he's writing this transcendent reality. He's writing the very fact of a prophetic book. Third thing he's going to write is this commentary on the whole book of the Bible. What is the best way to interpret the Bible? Use the Bible. Okay? The best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible itself. What do we believe about the Bible? We believe it's an unveiling story. What does revelation actually mean? In Greek, it's called the apocalypse. It just means revelation. It's continuing revelation. So what happens is the very beginning of the book, we have this kind of creation that happens all over. There's what happens that's so significant is the fall. And then we have the beginning plan of redemption where God redeems his people. It starts in Genesis 3. He talks to Adam and Eve. They've sinned. And what does he say to them? Your seed will crush that of the serpent. What's the next thing? Noah. He brings all the animals together, puts them in a boat, destroys the whole world. And then he says, I will never do this again. He makes a covenant. What does he say with Abraham? Look at the sea. There's sand on the shore. He says, your descendants will be more than all of that. Look up into the sky, see the stars. They'll be more plentiful. And then we see Moses. Moses brings the law. Christ will end up fulfilling the law. And finally, David brings the kingdom. And the kingdom is where God will establish his reign, where Christ is now. Now you ask, why is that? Take the Old Testament. What happens in the New? We actually see Christ start to fulfill all those covenants in person. 
So what they taught in seminary, which is called covenant theology, you start with the covenants, go all the way like this, and each covenant shows you a bigger picture of what's to come. Then we get to the New Testament, we see Jesus actually embody it, and then we get to the book of Revelation, and what happens? Jesus is in his glory. That is where we're going. On high to low, we are going to this place. I want to ask you, when you see Jesus, what happens? Jesus is terrifying. He's terrifying. What happens to everybody when they count Jesus? So the first thing I want you to apply to your life, Jesus in his glory is what? Terrifying. People fall down. Who are these guys that fall down at the feet? They are the bravest men you know. They saw something that was the most terrifying thing that they could ever imagine. Who thinks of Jesus like that? We think of him like powdered snow. It's a brick. He is far greater. Think of Daniel. Daniel stood up to the kings of Persia. Think of John. He was the only man that was faithful to the end and stood at the cross. All the other apostles fled. What happens with both of them? The minute they see Jesus, they fall dead. I don't want to think about Jesus that way. I like Jesus like this. Warm and fuzzy. I don't like Jesus as scary that could pierce through you, look through your soul and see who you are. The question is, why did these men fall? First, we have to understand Jesus is terrifying in his glory. Next, we need to understand Jesus is also graceful. When they fall down, especially the story of Daniel, he falls down on his feet. He sees God. He sees this image. And this is what happens with Daniel. And I want you to read along with me. If you have your Bible, turn to Daniel 5, verse 10. And it says this, And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, I want you to think of the affection here. Man, greatly love, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I've been sent to you. He goes and gets him. He's terrified, but he still bends down. He descends for him. And then he said, fear not, Daniel, for the first day that you set your heart to understand. This is the key. You set your heart to understand what? And humbled yourself before God. Your words have been heard, and I've come because of your words. You have up high, terrifying God that can look through you. I've said this before. When I get to heaven, I've heard this statement. Everybody's expecting, well done, thy good and faithful servant. It will come, but not before you slide on your belly into heaven with total terror. We don't want to think of God that way. But what does he do the second part? He reaches down and he says, no, I loved you. Because your heart is set on understanding. Understanding of what? All that we've seen before. That Jesus would fulfill it all. And what he is going to call us to is this very thing. Repentance. And it's my last point. Jesus in his glory leads us to repentance. What is repentance? I remember growing up in high school, I always thought repentance was behaviorally motivated primarily. Dwayne stopped doing that. That's what I thought school was about, repentance. Everybody stop what you're doing, be better, be good. But actually when you study the word, it's called metanoia. A change in the way we think. It's different. 
than changing behavior. Behavior will change, but changing the way we think. I was a youth pastor for many years here. And we'd take these long youth traps. And a lot of times you would call kids to repentance on those youth trips because they needed to repent. They were terrible. But we'd take them all over. And I remember we'd stick them in a van and we'd drive for a while. And as we were driving, you know, at the beginning of the trip, everybody throws their pillow in, their blanket in, all their stuff. And they have music playing. We got like 10 things playing at the same time. It's loud. It's horrible. And you're driving and you're hoping you don't get in an accident. And you're driving down the road. Dylan can attest to this. And for the first five hours, it's brutal. You go, Lord, just take me now. Rapture. That's revelation. Take me. And about two hours later, it starts to mellow out. A little while later, everybody's asleep, which you've been waiting for for 10 hours. You said, I was hoping this happened right when we got out of the gate. You get there, you lightly turn up the music that you were wishing you could have heard the whole time. And then after a while, you get tired. I'm, I'm starting to go, okay, we still got two hours, and I'm wishing the kids were back up. So a friend of mine taught me this. The way to get students back up is just tap the brakes and scream as loud as you can in the car, and they will wake up. They think they're in a terrible car accident, and everybody's screaming, and, and I'm just finding such great joy in it. This is what revelation is to a farther degree. And I got that idea because I was reading another guy that wrote a commentary and he said this. He said, we are sleepwalking in a battlefield. And I went, so true. The hardest part about an unrepentant church is we don't know we need to. I think we think we're doing well, guys. And we aren't doing quite as well. We're worried about things like LeBron James. I like LeBron James, but that's not all that important. We're worried about how our lawn looks. We're worried about how we're dressed. We're worried actually if our tie matches. And yet there's a battlefield going on around us. And what do these people need? What do we all need? We need to look through from the beginning to revelation that we need the gospel. And we have deviated from that, guys. We are no longer accustomed in our own hearts to saying, we're trusting in what's been done, we're still trying to do. And as long as we still try to do, we are an unrepentant church, we will lose our first love. Very first chapter we're going to deal with is the book of Ephesus in the first church. And they were probably the greatest church, founded by Paul. Timothy was a pastor. Priscilla and Aquila were there. They were a great church. And what did they say? They lost their first love. It only took 60 years for them to get misguided. Guys, it only takes a couple years before the church. One of the most ironic things is I looked at this. Those churches, none of them exist. So if none of those great churches exist, should we be on guard for the very fact? And it's not only being on guard for the very fact that we need to repent, but we need to be focused on what we need to be repenting to. We need to change our mind. The story, why does Jesus lift Daniel up? He lifts Daniel up because Daniel knew in his heart that there was a difference between him and God. When we have so much, we fail to realize that. 
I hope as we go through this series, and it's the final word, we'll remember the final word being done. Done. And we need to repent our hearts towards that. As we look at these churches, we'll begin to see it more and more clearly because it's obvious the story is not about us, but it's about Jesus and what he's done through history, even in his position of glory.